0: The
1: following audio is via a Skype call.
0: I know you think I'm like a hot, cold, captain of industry type.
2: That's not all there is.
0: TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. This is Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Thanks for staying there with us, we say optimistically, and today more so than usual because of our special guest. But we also want to say hello to Bad Boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you doing? Doing very well. The potatoes are charging the station efficiently right now. So we're just making sure they're good to go. <laughs> Nothing but the best. High tech all but the, the best, way. Right? <laughs> well, that's excellent. And <laughs> we are certainly looking forward to an hour's worth of high octane conversation. I think yesterday on Facebook I mentioned political talk par excellence. What else would you expect when the special guest is none other than Dr. Caroline Heldman?
1: Professor Caroline Hellman earned her Ph.D. in political science from Rutgers University and specializes in the American presidency and systems of power. Guess what we're going to talk about today. She previously taught at Whittier College, Fairfield University, and Rutgers University. Professor Hellman graduated summa cum laude with a degree in business management from Washington State University. Oh, Go Cougs! And, go Cougs and has worked extensively in the private sector. There is much more to say about her, but we wanna talk to Caroline Heldman, so we're gonna leave the rest of it for later, for the break. Dr. Heldman, so happy to have you with us today, welcome. Thank you, it's so wonderful to be with y'all.
0: I like that, a little southern touch too, for those of us who reside in the Southeast. That's right, (laughs) very good. Well, Caroline, always a pleasure to talk to you. Today, I wanted to start off by Commemorating the fact that 56 years ago the world was turned upside down in a most tragic way with the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And I think about that, Caroline, in the context of looking 56 years on, I, mean, I was just nine years old when that tragic event happened and trying to make sense of it. I still tell people how it's the only day I can remember in my entire life when adults would not meet each other's gaze there. And that's, that's just not normal. It was it was a private grief and everybody had their own relationship to it. And now 56 years on uh, 56 years later, I look at this event and I say the idealism that came to be known by the single word Camelot that was emblematic of the endless horizon and boundless optimism that the Kennedy administration, carried with it like an aura there was that that aura of yes we can do this we're going to go to the moon and then it was cut short about 1,000 days into the kennedy presidency and so caroline i want to ask you between that day and you're you're much younger than me so you're looking at it from a historical perspective i was around for it you were not there but when you look back now and you see that from the historical perspective What happened to that boundless idealism that characterized America, even in the midst of the 1960s Cold War?
2: Well, so our country is obviously in a very different space in terms of how we view other Americans uh, with greater suspicion, and there is more political division than we've had, I would argue, since the lead up to the Civil War. But you know, during times of tragedy, we do come together. And we actually saw that post 9-11 as well, where partisan differences were set aside. And so during these moments of great kind of shared national tragedy, we see that. Um, but since, I would argue, since um, the time period that you're talking about, we've had a number of things um, surface that have caused our, our culture to simply be more divided. Um, and, and the divisions that, have always been there, and I would argue there have always been race and class divisions and gender divisions um, and and ideas about conservatism versus progressivism and who gets to be included and counted in a culture and who gets to matter. Those divisions have always been there, but they are so much more amplified in a social media age and in a mass media age where political leaders and those who stand to gain from divisions can much more easily – generate these divisions and fan the flames of division. And we in in the modern age have never seen someone fan the flames of division as much as Donald Trump.
1: You know, when Gary and I were talking about preparing for the show today, what you have touched on is exactly what we were talking about in our living room. And the, the phrase that I came up with was from train tracks to Twitter. Gary said, oh, I like that, train tracks to Twitter. When Abraham Lincoln wanted to talk to the Americans, he got on the train and spoke from the back of the caboose. And then when you think about the um, the Kennedy Uh, Nixon debates, the people who heard it on the radio thought that Nixon had won, and the people that saw it on TV thought Kennedy had won. And that was the distinction between the audio and the visual. And then, you know, uh, President Obama probably made the first and best use of social media and his grassroots effort. So I'm looking at, okay, train, radio, television, social media and now twitter and i'm wondering how these uh, modes of communication intersect and how they influence the presidency big question
2: yeah and and one that researchers have thankfully spent a lot of time thinking about uh, certainly social media the social media age was not upon us with the presidency until um, until President Obama. So we have the advent of um, you know Facebook and really wide adoption in 2006, and then we have Twitter um, wide adoption uh, with Twitter and Instagram later that decade, 2008 and 9. Um, and so we've this technology is very new. It's very new for campaigns, but it's certainly very new for governance, right? And we didn't see. President Obama used social media for governance in the same way that we are seeing Donald Trump use essentially Twitter um, in order to convey and you know establish positions and get the public to think a certain way, um, and even to, to communicate with foreign adversaries or foreign allies. Um, we've He has taken it in a direction that I think is really unhealthy for the presidency, regardless of, of where you are in the political spectrum, um, simply because, you know, the, the small number of characters and, and the instantaneous nature of Twitter means that decisions or things that are being said are, are maybe um, not maybe they're certainly more off the cuff than they need to be, right? So for a president, you want this person, uh, we, you want him or her to be introspective, you want them to be thoughtful and planful prior to responding to things. But we see Donald Trump, you know, tweeting sometimes a hundred times a day, um, or retweeting and tweeting a hundred times a day. Um, and it, it's fast-paced and it's emotional and, you know, laden with typos, which I would argue, you know, just small things like that diminish the office of the presidency, but perhaps more to the core of it, um, having this ability for the president to communicate with the people directly and, and using it in the way that he does, in addition to using mass media like Fox and Friends and other Fox shows um, and other right-wing media, um, it's allowed him the ability to manipulate public opinion in ways um, that are not healthy for our democracy. And I argue that they're not healthy because this is a president who has told um, over 7,000 falsehoods or lies since he's taken office. And so um, this is a president who does not have a commitment to the truth, but is constantly putting out information in order to rile up the masses or or shift public opinion about specific topics. So um, I, I think in those if the bedrock of a democracy is an informed public, we are uh, in a dire situation with Donald Trump, um, you know, tweeting as much as he does. We, def-
0: we definitely are, Caroline. You know, I remember hearing about it, and I don't have it to look up in the moment. But as I recall fiery harry truman certainly was capable of expressing a personal opinion especially if he didn't like his daughter singing (laughs) there i can remember a critic perhaps from the new york times somebody in the in the press the media of the day there he wrote a personal letter and hereby hangs the tale he wrote a personal letter that i believe started out dear so-and-so you are a son of a bitch (laughs) and then he went on (laughs) to just Ream this guy for criticizing his daughter's public performance when she tried a singing career, or at any rate was giving that performance. And she received unbiased coverage and criticism from one person who looked at it as a performance and not simply a public presentation by the daughter of the president of the United States. He was a critic. And so he got told off. The difference is, Harry Truman sat down, wrote a letter, and told off this music critic. Donald Trump sends endless tweets with the intention of not only expressing himself, but ginning up his base so that it has a massive effect and he becomes an instant influencer. That's very different from writing a personal letter to someone whose opinion you don't care for.
2: Precisely. And there's no issue, obviously, with presidents being passionate and um, had taking positions, that, that is sort of, that is their job. But when you have a president, for example, in real time tweeting uh, what, you know, uh, the ambassador to Ukraine uh, or former ambassador uh, Yovanovitch uh, says felt like a threat to her while she's testifying before Congress. I mean, that, it's just an unprecedented moment, right, where you have a president tweeting something about a witness who's testifying against him, and she says it feels like a threat or you know, threatening um, adversaries, um, putting out that sort of information. Um, we, we've just never been here before. And unfortunately, technology is way ahead of the culture with this, or at least way ahead of our democracy, in that there don't appear to be checks on Trump using social media as a means of threat, as a means of manipulation, and as a means of you know, drumming up and ginning up emotions in politics, which I think are really unhealthy. And if you look at at, at the you know, the base of what has divided our country and have and has people, you know, some um, commentators talking about civil war, I mean, how did we get here? Um and we got here because we have technology in the hands of someone who is not as dedicated our democracy as he should be, and he's in an incredibly important position, one would argue the most important position, when it comes to protecting our Constitution and our democracy.
1: You know, Caroline, when uh, Gary and I were watching the impeachment inquiry hearings this year, we saw quite a number of very intelligent, sober, thoughtful uh, people, very patriotic people And it was the the um, the difference between what they were testifying to very, very carefully um, measuring all their words, making sure that they were being accurate, not jumping to conclusions because these were fact witnesses. So they were only giving the facts and wouldn't offer opinions in many cases and to, to see that kind of excellence and to, there was a part of me that said, what is going to happen to this? It reminds me of a hundred years ago or, or so when one of the most important things that you learned in school was cursive writing. And, and when you learned it, you wanted to make the letters beautiful, you wanted them to be readable, you had your own style. And so cursive writing was considered um, an, an art, uh, uh, very important for one's education and for communicating. And since then, there are schools that don't even teach it anymore. I have uh, a niece that only learned how to print because her school never taught cursive writing. And, of course, now everything gets typed. So when I looked at these people who were, who were so um, just wonderful in doing their jobs so perfectly by the rules, by the book, rule of law, I'm saying to myself, is this going away entirely? And when you have looked at systems of power in, in your job as, as, um, as a professor of politics, Is it possible that these kinds of things are actually on their way out? Well, I would like to think that
2: given the public's response to Donald Trump, as in a majority of Americans, even if they support him, a vast majority of Americans do not support his erratic um, behavior. um, I would like to think that he is an aberration. So, even though I think the tech, obviously, the technology is here to stay, meaning that former presidents can communicate directly with the public, manipulate them, drum up, you know, that fan the, the emotional flames of politics in ways that harm our democracy. That's certainly a potential, but my thought is that, uh, you know, even Republicans who continue to support him have, you know, a lot of them are holding their nose um, about the way in which he behaves um, in, in, I would argue, a very unpresidential um, way. Um, I would like to think that regardless of, of the party of the next president and following presidents, that we have learned our lesson about electing someone with, uh, you know, Donald Trump's temperament. Um, this is a man who came into office, the only presidential candidate ever uh, who to make it to the general election with no political, previous political experience and no military experience. And with this sort of, you know, brash uh, persona that was his brand And I think a lot of folks thought that he would get into the office and the office would change him and it would make him more presidential. But at the end of the day, what has happened is Donald Trump has actually changed the office. But I do. I am optimistic that regardless of the political party of the next president, um, that the office will be the presidential veneer and the dedication to the Constitution and, and processes and procedures and institutional rules will be reinstated. I think that. That the country is exhausted regardless of whether you support his policy positions um, we as, as a nation are simply exhausted uh, by you know the 24/7 spectacle that is Donald Trump
0: And there are those who believe that that's all part of the plan. If you listen to someone like Steve Bannon deconstructing and ultimately destroying the state as it exists as functional machinery turning it dysfunctional and then leaving it, behind as rubble as you go on to your own vision of what the world should be is very much part and parcel of what you're talking about. There are people a great way to get rid of your enemies is to exhaust them.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Gary. And I I certainly think in looking at what's happened just in the last few months that that it that has happened, right? The sense that Donald Trump has made the nation so exhausted and so immune to what would otherwise you know, be massive scandals that, for example, when Donald Trump um, told officials not to participate, to ignore subpoenas from Congress in the impeachment hearings? For me, as a constitutional scholar, you know, that, that was a heart-clutching moment where the, the checks and balances, the basic structure of our democracy, our democratic republic, of one branch of government being able to hold the most powerful branch of government accountable – Um, you know, barely made a blip in the news. And so I think that that in the short term, um, this kind of destabilization and deconstruction where everyone is so exhausted that these kind of horrifying, you know, anti-democratic actions barely, you know, barely pierce public consciousness. I think that is where we are now, but I think there's also just such a deep desire to return to, you know, basically not having to think about the president for a couple of weeks. Wouldn't that be a glorious moment? I do think there is a dedication to restoring the institutions and procedures. Um, even though I think the longer term damage of, of what he has wrought, um, you know, it, it will take longer in terms of repairing the individual and and the I would argue, you know the partisan kind of strife um, that that he has promoted and and has festered during his presidency.
0: I. I can still remember, because I was just precocious enough when I was 9 and 10 years old to take an interest in such things, I can still remember, Caroline, how desperately Democrats wanted to have LBJ win the 1964 election with such a convincing mandate that conservatism, as embodied in the person of Barry Goldwater of Arizona, Senator Barry Goldwater, would be obliterated, would be considered a great irrelevancy. And I have to smile today, because the great fear people had about Barry Goldwater was that he was going to be the mad bomber. It would be nukes everywhere. Uh, there, the Constitution would be utterly subverted, if not destroyed none of which I actually have come to believe over the years. I don't think Barry Goldwater was the kind of man who would do any such thing. He was a right winger. There's no question about that. He was known as Mr. Conservative. But when I look at Barry Goldwater in the background, compared to what Donald Trump is actually doing, and particularly following on a trend that you know very well has been going on since at least the mid-1980s, taking conservatism and marrying it to evangelical Christianity. We're looking at the very kind of movement that Barry Goldwater himself warned us would be destructive to the republic.
2: Absolutely. Um, and it, so, Gary, I, and as I hear you talking, I, I think about two distinct things, right? One is is that there's ideology that you might not agree with, right? This conservatism or this base in traditionalism or the, the pull to Keeping things as they are or have been for a long time versus progressivism, which is more democratic and more liberal and, and moving the, the culture further and including more people and, and thinking about things in a new way. And I think that tension is here to stay. And it's a perfectly fine and reasonable tension in a democracy. You know, you want folks who are saying, hey, slow down. Uh, we don't, you know, we want things, We want to keep the hierarchies as they are. And then you need folks who are pushing against that. Uh, because it, in in the long run, it generates a really thoughtful, hopefully thoughtful conversation and better public policy. And then on the other end of things, I think you're right about Goldwater. Uh, you see this, this partisan use of saying, oh, you're a threat to democracy or, or you're a threat to our country, um, which by and large has been hyperbole. It's been a partisan hyperbole. I think the difference between all of that and Donald Trump is that it has nothing to do with conservatism. He actually is engaging brazenly and openly engaging in acts that threaten the Constitution and our democracy. Um, he's abused his power for political gain, and we've seen that so clearly in the Ukraine scandal. We've also seen it, you know, in terms of Amazon and pushing the post office to double rates for Amazon because he doesn't like the coverage in the Washington Post. We've seen him um, ordering officials to block the AT&T and Time Warner merger because he doesn't like the CNN coverage. So, you know, getting back to this idea that, the single most dangerous threat to any democratic system is that the ruling power will use its governing power in order to entrench itself illegally or to stay in power beyond what the people want. Um, and and so we see him doing it, openly engaging in this in ways that previous presidents, if they did, for example, Nixon certainly did, but he covered it up. Trump's not covering it up. Um, he's mishandled classified information. You know, he does business on a cell phone. He's reversed 25 security clearances. He set up Mar-a-Lago as, you know, this second kind of unsecured White House. Um, He's openly obstructed justice. He's openly, you know, people forget the Mueller report had 10 cases where he openly obstructed justice. He's obstructing Congress. And then he's also profiting from the presidency, openly profiting. And so all of these, you know, the abuse of power for political gain, the misuse of information, obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, and then profiting from the presidency, These kind of five types of behavior that he's openly engaging in are unlike anything we've ever seen. And they are, from a constitutional perspective, a direct threat to our democracy, setting partisanship aside, setting conservatism aside versus liberalism. Um, We're talking about whether or not our system of governance is intact. And at this point in time, I would argue it is not. Because he's not even dealing with the most basic, you know, he's doing all of these things on one hand, and then on the other hand, not even dealing with the most basic threat to our democracy, which is that Russia hacked our election last time, and they are doing it again. They have plans to do it and are actively doing it now.
0: Well, Suzanne may have a comment, but I've got to get this in now. Let's let's definitely check our facts here, Caroline, because Devin Nunes assures us that it was the Ukrainians who are behind all that hacking, they're responsible. Well,
1: and what I was going to say to all of this, Caroline, and, and thank you for encapsulating it so beautifully, is, you know, given everything that we have seen this week, and, and granted I have a, a much more progressive uh, philosophy and attitude in my life, I, I say to myself, how can any rational, normal person look at all of this and say... Uh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't count, he's my guy. I mean, I look at that and I just, I, I, I'm in disbelief. I'm in disbelief that somebody like that is our president.
2: Well, he speaks to a certain segment of the population. And if we look at who that segment is, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that, that you know, one in five Americans actually voted to put Donald Trump into office. And, and of those, you know, about, about a third of the public still supports him, but it's still... Really, only one in five Americans, and it is a myth that they are economically depressed or or were you know more likely to be economically depressed in 2016. In fact, we know that lower income folks actually voted for Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump supporters are very unique, right? They um, tend to be white, they tend to be male, although there are you know a, a majority of women elected him, a majority of white women no longer support him, which is interesting. Uh, but he speaks to something. He's, I believe. He allays the fears of those who are worried about the shifting social order. So if you look at how his rhetoric and, and the emotional appeal of his politics, I think he is speaking and tapping into the fears of white men who are worried about the shifting social order. And, and the social order actually is shifting. So if you look in the past 50 years, women have made gains. People of color have made gains. LGBTQ plus folks have made gains. We're now having national conversations, you know, about inclusion and diversity and fairness. And these are not conversations that we, we were having even a couple of decades ago on a national level. And so I think that Donald Trump is the last gasp of a truly shifting social order. And I, I'm looking at data and I see that marginalized people while we have a long ways to go in our culture in terms of marginalized people actually being considered, you know, a full part of our society, we've made great progress in terms of uh, economic progress, political progress, and social progress. And so any system that has people at the top who believe that they are entitled to be at the top, when that system, when when their unchecked uh, entitlement or privilege starts to be checked because the order is shifting, there's a great deal of fear around that. And so Donald Trump is tapping directly into that fear of the shifting social order. And, and at the end of the day, while it's incredibly painful uh, that there's a backlash against what I consider to be you know basic human progress, um, I do think it's a very positive sign that the social order is actually shifting. Because if we weren't seeing a shift in this non-meritorious hierarchy with white men at the top, if we weren't actually seeing that shift, That I don't think we would actually have such a vitriolic backlash against it.
1: Oh, well said. Well said. Thank you. Um, Yes. And I also heard what you said earlier about um, needing both the people who move us forward and the people who don't let us move forward too fast. And it's a little bit like a left foot and a right foot. You know, you want to be able to walk evenly with both feet. You don't want to be one-footed and hopping around. So you do need people who say, you know, Let, let's go forward. Let's include more people. It's okay for the social order to shift. And then you've got the people who are saying, oh, but not so fast, not so fast. Let's take a look at this. Let's go slow. And so I think it it is um, – it is it is needing both things. we We had two very high level competing companies in this town that both had the same the same job. They were two regional workers compensation companies. And by having two in town, they were competing for the talent and they were keeping the wages up because there there was that competition. And so I think the competition of the progressives and the conservatives really keeps us at a high level. And I like that you say that the the social order is shifting. One of the ways that that I picked up on it is an increasing number of commercials on television with mixed couples, Uh, weddings and holidays and children and all kinds of stuff where one is black and one is white It came about a a lot after um, the marriage of uh, Markle uh, to um, Prince Harry. And, And so now I see so much more of that. And I'm going, this is a good thing, you know, for people to start thinking of this as normal and not, you know, so unusual.
2: Well, and you bring up yes, a great measure, right? Which is advertising, and and the Gina Davis Institute just recently came out with a study that looks over ten years and of the most popular advertisements, and found that the number of uh, people of color and the number of women in advertisements is increasing. Certainly, the number of interracial couples is increasing. Also, the number of LGBTQ plus couples and themes uh, advertising around you know gay people. Uh, That has also increased, Uh, and one stat that sticks with me in particular is that a decade ago, the the amount of time that men were speaking versus women speaking in ads was 7 to 1, and that ratio has now gone down to 2 to 1. So there's still a gap, and I I think that's kind of the epitome of of all progress, right? There's still this massive gap, 2 to 1, men speaking in commercials versus women, but it's not a 7 to 1 gap, and that's significant rapid progress in in the matter in a matter of a decade.
1: I like
0: it. At this point, why don't we take our break, our one and only break of this hour. We are privileged to talk to Dr. Caroline Heldman, professor of politics at Occidental College. We are getting into some serious weeds. It's fascinating as always when Caroline joins us on air. Give us a couple of minutes, then more of Manson Mitchell right here at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Receiving
1: audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell.
0: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Caroline Heldman, professor of politics at Occidental College, who specializes in presidential systems and addresses the impeachment inquiry hearings.
1: On Saturday, Catherine Lafon rings in Thanksgiving week with thoughts about our relationship to food, seasoned with gratitude and appreciation.
0: Bringing you fascinating talk since 2007.
1: We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150.
0: Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: Can can I get a witness? Marvin Gaye. That
0: was a great choice. Suzanne Mitchell. <laughs> no
1: kudos well to you. Yeah. Can I get a witness? We are talking with Dr. Caroline Heldman of Occidental College. Caroline, if people would like to connect with you, you've got some books out. You've got plenty of articles written And if you would like to share your website and any information about how people can find out more about what it is that you do.
2: Thank you, Suzanne. Um, It's all in one place, drcarolineheldman.com. And I'm on social media. I I see Trump's tweets all day long, so I hope everybody else is too. In some sense, even though it's exhausting, it's also, you know, more people are tuning into politics than they have in the modern, modern media age. So, um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and, and, uh, Instagram. Um, my Instagram account, I will say is much more personal. So if you want to see me ax throwing or skating or, you know, hanging out at Disneyland, that's, uh, (laughs) that's where, that's where the fun photos are.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you.
0: Beautiful. I wanted to bring it now. Can I get a witness? This was so great that you selected that, Suzanne. A couple of witnesses, fact witnesses. I'd like to bring these names up for your consideration. I would love to get your point of view, Caroline. Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch and Dr. Fiona Hill. You want to talk strong women. You want to talk about powerful intellect. You want to talk about speaking truth to power these two women have honored themselves, they have clothed themselves in glory, as far as I'm concerned, for their experience, their wisdom, for their integrity. And yet I say this to you, Caroline, watching Devin Nunes, whom I brought up sarcastically before the break, I could almost physically see the testimony of these powerful, experienced, and wise women shooting past the ears of people like Congressman Nunes and his colleagues on the Republican side during these hearings, it's like whatever they said, no matter how powerful and telling, it's it just wasn't going to fit their agenda.
2: Well, and that's how partisanship makes us a little stupid, right? And and it's so um, it's sad to see that when people get really dedicated to their party and they view the other party as you know being the enemy and this kind of tribalism of. You know, my people or my in-group. It there's there's a little part in your brain that just turns off, right? And so, and and I whether it's Devin Nunes or it's you know a person on the street talking politics or getting viewing their party as a cult. I think it's really uh, the the thing that bothers me the most is it makes people less intelligent about being able to process information. And we certainly saw that with Nunes and other you know partisan members of the House Intelligence Committee. Um, who went after both Yovanovitch and Dr. Hill. And I thought it was this incredible moment where Sean Maloney, uh, this representative, uh, accused his fellow Representative Turner of mansplaining to Fiona Hill, Um, and that's a matter of public record. I don't know if if the term mansplaining has ever made it into the congressional record, but it it (laughs) did during this impeachment proceeding. And, wow, um, Dr. Hill yesterday, um, really challenging, going after this manipulative framing from from the Trump camp that the Ukraine uh, hacked our our elections and not Russia. I mean, that's a perfect example of how social media messages coming from the top can cause a segment of the American public to simply believe something that is not accurate. There is no evidence that Ukraine was involved in the hacking of our elections, and yet there is ample evidence coming from 11 different agencies and being echoed by 17 sub-agencies um, bipartisan agencies of the U.S. government saying yes, indeed, Russia hacked our elections. We know that 21 states had their electoral systems hacked in 2016. It was, it's, look it up. You know, ABC, CBS News, NBC. It, it was covered in mainstream media, and yet now we're talking about Ukraine hacking our elections. But but people believe that, right? Millions of Americans believe that because Donald Trump and his surrogates have been promoting that fiction, as Dr. Hill called it. And it was really wonderful. It's wonderful to see women as whistleblowers and to see women stand up for institutions. But I'll extend it beyond um, Ambassador Yovanovitch and Dr. Fiona Hill. I'll say that that all of these Trump administration officials or former officials who are testifying in the impeachment proceedings are all doing so with incredible grace. Um, And it's great to see that on the Republican side. It's great to see people who possibly identify as Republicans, but certainly work for a Republican administration, who are are putting their patriotism and their love of country and democracy over partisanship.
0: I also, thank you for that, Caroline. Uh, brilliantly stated. I also want to just duck in here that people who are almost reflexive, i forget almost, they reflexively defend Donald Trump and don't believe he's guilty of a damn thing. They like to say, Donald Trump didn't say to any of these witnesses, I'm going to bribe the Ukrainians, or I demand this, a quid pro quo. There was no quid pro quo. The witness who, witnesses who have testified have been fact witnesses. If there's a case to be built, you build it on available facts, and there's always going to be a certain amount of interpretation. I don't care who is on trial or who is being impeached. That is how it's done. But I see that the the Trumpsters, there are those who believe that unless he walked into the room and said to uh, Fiona Hill, this is what I want you to do. I want Biden to be dirtied up you're going to do that for me, or you'll lose your job, and the president of Ukraine is not going to come over and talk to me in the White House unless he does as I say, and there is a quid pro quo, and that's the way it's going to be. Why would he do that? Why would anyone do that when you are responsible for achieving things that suit your personal interests, that suit your agenda, and, oh, by the way, wouldn't it be good if it benefited the country? Wasn't it Michael Cohen, who was shortly to go to jail, testified before Congress that that's not how Donald Trump works. He speaks the language of the mob boss, letting his wishes be known in a way that is inferential for those people who are expected to carry out his wishes without being explicitly told.
2: That's a great question, Gary. And so I I think it's important to clarify that in order to achieve the standard of um, high crimes or misdemeanors, uh, a quid pro quo is not required. Um, that is a very it, it, it is a loose definition of you know, high crimes and misdemeanors doesn't mean anything in the modern context. It certainly doesn't mean what the term misdemeanor means. If you look back at the history of that, um, the British Parliament actually invented impeachment um, in 1376 and they invented it because there were um, there were politicians and political leaders, who were abusing the power of their offices. So it doesn't require a, a legal criminal violation. It doesn't require a quid pro quo. What it requires is that another branch of government, in this case, Congress, decide that there has been an abuse of power of that office. And so quid pro quo is not needed. With that said, it is very clear that there was a quid pro quo with Donald Trump. Again, not not required, For impeachment, not required to meet the standard for high crimes and misdemeanors. But if you listen to the testimony of specifically, um, you know, Taylor, Yovanovitch, I would argue Venman, uh, Sondland and uh, Hill, it's really clear that 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 Donald Trump that there was uh, that everyone had shared knowledge of what was happening, which is that Donald Trump, as he openly admitted, um, pressured the president of Ukraine to investigate the Bidens meaning he asked them to investigate a political opponent and that the money was held up, nearly $400 million in aid was held up. So um, at the end of the day, it doesn't require a quid pro quo, but goodness, a third grader can see that there was a quid pro quo here.
0: And it's also only sensible for anyone who is being accused or at least investigated to say, no, I didn't do it. We have an adversarial justice system here. The idea is you say, I'm not guilty, and then the prosecution, in this case, the House taking the case to the Senate, eventually, there has the responsibility of proving their case. So, yes, you will be accused, and you're only to be expected to say, no, no, there was nothing there, no quid pro quo at all. If you're a guilty party, you would be advised to say so.
2: And and Donald Trump initially did admit, right? He, he admitted— that he asked them to investigate the Biden. So That's true. whether or or not there was a, whether or not there was a money thing, which makes it even worse, he already admitted to you know what many believe is a violation of the office. And um, then Mr.
0: Mulvaney, um, his acting chief of staff, told us all to get over it.
2: Right. So they keep shifting the story. First, it's I did it. Well, no, then I didn't do it. Well, then I did it, but I'm it's okay to do it. Right. Um, So he's making up the rules as he goes along. But at the end of the day, about 70 percent or 73 percent of people in the most recent poll um, of uh, national polls with Politico say that they believe that there was a quid pro quo with the Ukraine. So uh, the fact is, when you look at at the history of of how um, impeachment has worked, it's always been very political, right? So there have been three cases where impeachment could have happened. Um, And in fact, in two cases where it did happen, but then impeachment simply means that you Mm. charges are brought and then the Senate investigates, right? So the House impeaches, the Senate removes. Um, We saw the impeachment of Andrew Andrew Johnson um, after the Civil War. We saw the impeachment of Bill Clinton, neither of whom was removed by the Senate. And in fact, if Donald Trump gets impeached, he will also not be removed by the Senate because it's a majority Republican and you would need a supermajority of of members of the Senate to actually remove him from office. But at the end of the day, what is distinct about what Donald Trump has done is that the, the previous cases were partisan. Right. So and keep in mind that Richard Nixon, it didn't actually get to that. Um, but. In in the case of Andrew Johnson and in the case of Bill Clinton, these were partisan initiatives. They were led by people who didn't like their policy, didn't like what they were doing in office, and misused impeachment in order to go after them. In Donald Trump's case, I would argue that he has actually engaged in egregious violations and that it is the duty of members across the board, regardless of of their partisanship in Congress, to hold him accountable for this, because if we don't hold him accountable for this, what precedent does that establish for presidents moving forward?
1: In that case, he is more like Nixon than than Clinton or Johnson because Nixon was they also figured out Nixon was definitely involved in uh, what would have been a high crime.
2: Yes, correct, Suzanne. He just wasn't impeached. Um, he didn't right. get that far, right? He resigned. And so if you look at the parallel, Um, You know, what Richard Nixon did and what Donald Trump did, um, both actually engaged in things that are impeachable. But the only time that presidents have been impeached is for purely, you know, I would argue partisan reasons.
1: Right. Caroline, um, earlier we were talking about um, two things. One is the exhaustion of the American people over the current president. And the other was something that you had mentioned in talking about something else where you were talking about more political engagement. With only uh, approximately 50% of people actually voting in a presidential election, do you have a prediction about the 2020 election as to the percentage of the American people that might be voting in this upcoming presidential election?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it's hard to predict. But you're right that in in, in a typical election, we get between 50 and 55 percent of folks turning out to vote, and that's during presidential elections, which which should be a, a big red flag that you know also our democracy is also threatened by lack of public engagement when half the half the public doesn't even bother to turn out to vote in presidential elections. But something happened in uh, 2018. Where we actually saw turnout shooting up, especially amongst uh, younger people, which is something that we haven't seen in quite some time. Um, so in 2018, those ages 65 and older um, had a turnout of nearly 70%. And it goes down for each age group, but I mean, just I- incredibly high for an off election year. And so, again, while it's hard to predict what will happen in 2020, my guess is that it will look um, historic, at least for the modern uh, media age. We started to see a massive decline starting you know, in, in, in 1960. Um, the 1960, 62, and 64 elections, we started to see voter turnout um, plummet in presidential elections. So I think we will see a significant bump in 2020, if 2018 is any indicator.
1: And I'm glad you're talking about young people as well. The the high school students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in uh, Parkview, Florida, uh, continue to lobby with the Florida legislature on gun control. And I would say that um, they're going to be uh, also trying to get the vote out from all of those uh, high school people turning 18 they're definitely going to be much more politically active because they they have uh, something in mind that they really want to accomplish with regard to uh, gun control. But also, they'll be voting in the election, and so I'm happy to see more young people voting.
2: Well, and they they're a game changer, right? So what we're now calling Generation Z, which is uh, young people ages 24 and younger. No longer millennials, right? Millennials are the generation ahead of them. If you can, if you want to feel old, think about that. They're, millennials are not the youngest generation anymore. Um, generation Z is very distinct in in a variety of ways uh, that affect elect, electoral politics. Um, they just to give you a sense, they're the most diverse generation that we've seen in the U. S. They're also the largest generation we've seen in the U. S. The millennials were bigger than, than the baby boomers, and Generation Z is even bigger than, than millennials. So they have the ability to change the political landscape. And their politics look very different than previous generations in that they are more liberal because they're growing up in an era of Donald Trump tweeting. They're growing up in an era of school shootings. Um, and so their, their rates of identifying as Democrats and identifying as liberal and even identifying as democratic socialists is higher than previous generations. So you have this massive, diverse, uh, more politically engaged group of young people than we've seen in the US political context in a very long time, and they plan to vote Democratic, which if you're the Republican Party, you should have, I mean, the Republican Party has, has not done a good job of responding to demographic shifts that have affected turnout and have affected support for their party for the last two decades. And now the situation is very dire because at the end of the day, Generation Z is so big that you can't just demobilize voters with voter ID laws and with these, you know, these um, awful voter registration laws with the intention of making sure that that certain populations don't vote. All these hijinks from Republicans that we've seen in the last, you know, decades remain relevant. Those voter uh, anti-democratic voter measure hijinks won't work because Gen Z is simply too big.
1: Oh, I like that. That gives me hope. Uh, It gives
0: me hope as well, and yet I will point out, Caroline, that the latest information I have heard watching the news here from my couch as I eat dinner (laughs) is that one thing that the Republicans have going for them is this incredibly well-organized ability using various channels to outstrip the Democrats when it comes to fundraising. So, to the extent that elections can be bought, the Republicans appear to be very well positioned for 2020, if for no other reason than that.
2: Yeah, and that's a great point. And in fact, they have Republicans have been one step ahead of Democrats when it comes to money, fundraising, and professionalization of campaign work for at least half a half a century since I have been studying it, and in, in, uh, or the the time period that I have studied. Republicans have always been ahead of Democrats on that, which I think is the only reason why uh, the party remains competitive and relevant, given that the party is so out of step with the majority opinions of most Americans. And so I am hoping that the massive size of Generation Z and the progressive politics of Generation Z really pushes the Republican Party to reconsider policy positions that are more inclusive. And, and are more in line with what a majority of Americans think. So, for example, you brought up, you know, the, these brave students who are fighting for gun control measures after a mass shooting at their school. Um, it, 95% of Americans want background checks, and 91% uh, of Americans want a national registry. That is not a partisan issue. It is across the board that Americans support this. And yet the Republican Party, because it's in the pockets of the NRA and other powerful gun lobbyists, um, they simply won't consider common sense gun measures. And so I hope this is a wake up call that the Republican Party needs to shift its issue positions to get more in line with the American public.
0: Or not. Right. Hope springs eternal. But I can tell you (laughs) that. And it seems like a relatively minor issue, but it's not unimportant. We are now seeing President Trump back off of his early, I shouldn't say early, but recent opposition to vaping. Now, people with money are speaking to, well, hold your horses there, Mr. President, you know, and all of a sudden his strong stance against vaping, which has resulted in deaths, is now being considered in terms of electoral politics.
2: Well, and and we're battling that in California as well. And I think that 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 is really epitomizes the difference between what you know young people believe, and and want and advocate and see for their future going forward, and what more traditional you know conservatives see. Um, conservatives will not carry the day simply because of numbers and and how long it takes for the system to shift. That's the question, right? And whether the Republican Party you know goes out of business uh, or reinvents itself. I would hope it reinvents itself because getting back to what we brought up earlier in the conversation we were having about the importance of having checks and balances on, on ideological extremism. Um, And I'm not somebody who likes centrism. I actually think that, that there are positions to be staked out that make sense based in data, based in history and based in what is right and ethical and moral. Um, But at the end of the day, we don't, we do want to be able to check the fringes on either side and the way that we do that is by having sensible democrats and republicans who are working together at a federal state and local level to bring about policies and regulations that actually benefit and keep in mind and, and advance the american public
1: you, you know we've only got two minutes left but you you're reminding me that in watching the democratic debates the other night and looking at the top four people now for quite a long time uh, the top three, Biden, Warren, and Sanders, and now kind, Pete's moved into number four. I said to Gary, this is the first time where I have felt as though um, the the nomination will not go to Warren or Sanders because they're just too far left.
2: Well, and Buttigieg and Biden have done a good job of, of painting them as such. I'm certainly, my heart is, is with the Warrens and the Sanders of the world in terms of politics. But I think you're right, Suzanne, that if you look at poll after poll for Democrats, the most important question is who is most electable against Donald Trump, not whether or not my views align. So I think we'll probably get a centrist candidate.
1: Yeah.
0: And I want to put in a plug for Amy. Amy for America, Amy Klobuchar, I think she's an extraordinary person, extraordinarily accomplished, and someone who can work across the aisle. She's proven it. Does that mean that I will not vote for Joe Biden? I don't know what the race is going to look like by the time it gets to Florida. We will have to see. But I certainly hope that we get to hear from you, Caroline Heldman. You're such a wonderful guest. You have so much to offer sometime early in 2020. Let's do this again.
1: Sounds like a plan. Good and thank you for being with us today. Great conversation. Oh As always. Okay. So. All right. Thank Coming you. Coming up next. Coming up next, we have Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, and after that, a great little half-hour show called American Road Trip Talk with guest with host. I say guest host, but you're the actual host. <laughs> I'm the guy behind the mic,
0: and I hope to have you join me today for this particular episode. I think I will. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I hope this is the start of a great weekend for you. Stay tuned whenever possible to AM 1150, Seattle's home for alternative talk.